Welcome to this podcast recording from the DFARM 2022 conference on the Pfizer Pledge, getting to 60% remote clinical trials across all therapeutic areas in 2022. The DFARM conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast recording from DFARM 2022. Hello, everyone, and thank you for your time today. So today we're just going to talk a little bit about our story, about how we started implementing these decentralized clinical trials in practice, and a little bit of our journey throughout this. So to start, the decentralized clinical trials represent a big spectrum of alternatives for how patients and where patients can actually participate in a clinical study. And this can range from one single interaction that is digital to never going to a clinical site, so never even actually stepping into a clinical site. So individual components of each of the study can also be decentralized. So if you think about a study as a whole, that can be decentralized, but also each one of the components in that study could be decentralized, and that could provide flexibility in the study design and can range from a hybrid, where you have some components that are decentralized with some that are not, to actually some cases where it's fully decentralized. So if you look at the bottom of the slide, you can see this spectrum that we're talking about. With one opposite end, one of the ends is the traditional brick-and-mortar sites where patients go to the clinic and everything is done there in the traditional manner. And on the opposite side, the other extreme is something that is completely fully decentralized, where they are fully remote, they don't ever go to the clinic, and they can do everything either from home, from a mobile device, etc. And there's a lot that can happen in between. And you can build some flexibility that is either defined by the protocol or that is really more patient preference. So what would work out for that individual in particular? So our journey. So as you can see, we've had a few years of this journey. We started back in 2018 with a phase two study in atopic dermatitis that was completely and fully decentralized. So 100% of the visits were, were done remotely, and we'll talk a little bit more about that particular first experience in the next few slides. But as we moved through, then we had this COVID SWAT teams where we had hundreds of colleagues really utilizing and learning how to use these different modalities to restart studies since the pandemic was really disrupting all the clinical operations. Then we moved into establishing a, a community of practice. So really like best learning, best practices, and what works, what doesn't for us, for the sites, for the patients. And that includes now a team of 60 plus people. Uh, we have this hypercare team that has actually talked to more than 100 study teams and implemented and helped them implement and think about how to decentralize and provide more flexibility in their study design, but also in the operation side of how they implement the protocols. That group in itself is pushing for global expansion, so really trying to bring this to a global footprint where we have this flexibility and this options for every single patient that participates in our studies. And then we moved into our current model, which we call the Clinical Trial Concierge. And Tim will talk to you a little bit more about that one. So talking about that first experience, that phase two study. So it was a fully decentralized phase two study of Crisoboro in patients that had stasis dermatitis. Participants were recruited via digital advertisements only. So again, everything was decentralized. Everyone, Everything was remote. 100% of the visits were done either at the patient's home or through telemedicine. We use high-resolution photography to look at their skin 
lesions, so we could use that to assess their, the efficacy of the medication. And then there was also some assessments that were done at the patient's home. So that included some efficacy in-person assessments, laboratory sampling, and ECG. And then patients could complete their electronic patient-reported outcomes, surveys, their dosing diary through a mobile device using an app. And the study drug was shipped directly to their home. So every single component of that study was a decentralized or a remote fashion. Here you can see the flow of the, the, the skin photography that we took. So photographs were collected through a mobile device. That's how we captured all the images. Patients would do it from their home on their own. So they didn't have to go to the clinic for the physician to take the photographs for them. They could do it on their own. Then those images were uploaded. There was an image review on QC, and then there was sent to a, a central review group that would actually score those photographs. So in summary, or our conclusions, is that decentralized clinical trial solutions can be successfully executed and are of high interest to regulators like FDA. The stasis dermatitis population was a very well-suited population for this kind of trial. It was all adults. It was a, 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 a drug that had a very well-known safety profile. Um, the amount of skin that was involved in the disease was small. And also the study drug was an ointment that was very easy to use for patients to use at home with not a lot of instructions. So it was a very well-suited um, population and a design of a study for this type of trial. Um, also, like patients could do these things, um, the efficacy endpoints, we could measure them, measure them with the photographs, so that also was a piece that was important. And also patients could really fill out the electronic PROs, and that would give us information about their quality of life. So all of these components we could actually get in a decentralized fashion. So in conclusion, we, saw, we thought, after learning the experience of do, driving the trial, that a hybrid design with some combination of on-site, at-home, or telemedicine would be a good alternative to a fully remote design, depending on the type of population, the type of trial that you're doing. And also a combination of digital advertisement recruitment with on-site recruitment would also be a good alternative for, to only doing digital advertisement recruitment. And then just as, as, as um, uh, the experience from the patient perspective, so we did some surveys from the participants, and it was mostly favorable. In general, patients liked participating in a clinical study from their home. And we say home, but they could really participate from wherever they were. So our conclusions from that experience is that we could continue to scale up and expand the DCT approach and really use this as the foundation to continue growing. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Tim to talk to you about what we do today. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, everybody. It's good to see everybody. It's always uh, fun to come and present right after lunch when everybody is uh, getting back and feeling nice and full. So we'll try to keep our little talk here going. Um, so as Danny mentioned before, our approach here has really been a journey, kind of a long-term journey that we have um, been interested in and really kind of adopted this way. COVID kind of you know, presented an area where uh, rocket packs got attached to us in terms of our approach. And, and it turned to being rather than an innovative new way we think things are going to go to a way we have to go in a very short amount of time. So I think all of us, and especially a lot of people in this room here, are very tuned into and aware of, you know, what our own 
each kind of interpretations and definitions are of decentralized clinical trials, right? So things like home health, direct-to-patient, drug ship, all that other kind of good stuff you see on the piece here. And um, a big piece of it that all of us have been working under, too, is the hypothesis that it's going to improve things, right? So the the hypothesis that we're going to boost recruitment and enrollment, um, increase retention and or trials, uh, increase diversity and all of those other kind of things, right? So, but it starts to remain <clears throat> a hypothesis until we do it enough and until we start to actually collect enough data about it to actually say, are any of these things starting to hold true? So kind of the exciting part as I go through the slides here, you see our approach on where we felt the level of effort needed to be for us to put enough effort into it to start to get enough data back where we can start to see does this hypothesis start to hold true? And are there certain areas that maybe are working better than others that we can spend more time on? So even as we get towards the end of the deck, I'll post up some really early look <clears throat> at what some of our um, completed studies that have been running in a DCT way are starting to show us in terms of impact. And it was really a, a quite a positive surprise on recruitment and retention overall. So in the title of the... Um, presentation that you guys are all attending here, you saw where there was a piece about us reaching 60%, right? So um, we work in a semester goal-based structure at uh, Pfizer, right? So we have twice a year we set our goals. And um, so in those goals, we thought in order to get the right level of, of endorsement, participation, acceptance of doing these kind of things, we would make them be um, a goal. So we set a very aggressive goal. Um, it was a goal for 60% of all of our study trial visits would um, have at least one or more component of DCT type approach things there, right? So, and if you kind of take that down in the path, <clears throat> you can go to the next slide, um, you start to think about all the things that need to maybe happen for that to occur. So it's one thing to say a goal of, you know, we're going to, quote unquote, make our study teams use these new things that they haven't heard a lot about or haven't tried those things in the past, right? So, you know, I think as a lot of folks know in this room here, anytime you're trying to implement a new innovative approach, it takes a lot of up and front work, right? So <clears throat> what, what we started to do was to develop the structure, which we refer to as the clinical trial concierge, and it's kind of a multi-phase approach, which I'll go into a bit more, that is essentially, you know, how we developed a body of SMEs and folks that had a passion about this type of innovation, about trying to deliver patients a level of uh, flexibility that they haven't had before. And then we kind of created a team around that to be able to work very closely with study teams um, in a way <clears throat> that would help you know, really increase the overall adoption and uptake of this stuff, right? Because again, we felt that, you know, it'll always continue to remain the thing we either talk about or just have a hypothesis that it's going to work and do all of these things. But we really need to do it more so we can start to see if any of those things hold true or if we need to maybe pivot and change our, stra our uh, strategy around. So again, you'll see here our overall goal in this place around creating the clinical trial concierge group um, and to apply 
a service that we refer to as hypercare. So it is to really handhold study teams and um, impacted folks in the organization in terms of what these pieces look like. And when I say handhold, it means we're starting very, very early with them in the very early stages of designing their uh, protocol um, to the standpoint of where we have a group of folks that go with them, meet with them, and go through visit by visit to then assess each visit for a number of things, right? So things of which DCT modality we think it'll apply to, um, efforts we think we can do from a, a diversity and inclusion standpoint, looking at a lot of things about the study, you know, geographic location, uh, demographic and like age groups about the patients and all that, right? Because again, our key piece here is there's not a one size fits all solution for everybody, right? And for the folks that were here yesterday, and I spoke a little bit about this in another case around uh, other spots with ePro and others, you, you have to really spend that time up front to really assess what the visits look like for the study. And again, who's going to be the actual uh, patient participating in the study and somewhat be able to tweak and adjust that from there. So then specifically underneath that, so you would start to imagine that, well, how do you start getting an organization that's maybe big enough to have all of those folks that, that we can meet with every study team and do all of that work, right? Well, we did not increase headcount or make any of those change things there, right? We, we kind of put out an offering. Don't forget, we're back in the COVID time when we started to do this piece, and people would want to help wherever they could, right? So we kind of started to tell the story around the impact that we think it'll have on uh, patients and um, other things. And really, it, it, it became a very large cross a functional team from folks all over in multiple organizations that we kind of came up with a, a training program around to become what we refer to as CTC uh, LAs. And they're somewhat of now, they have a little bit of a specialized skill set. Maybe they have experience in a particular uh, uh, therapy area and they're able to kind of really help teams through a design standpoint also looking at maybe the design of their studies what the visits look like can certain things be combined and then which component of uh, decentralized clinical trial components can be applied to it you know with that effort on looking at again to, to tie everything all together there is how much data and what do we need to start to collect back this is really just a you know kind of just an illustrative view to say we, you know, from a socialization standpoint, <clears throat> top-down approach, side-to-side -side approach, right? So, so we had everybody involved. So anybody that had any kind of, you know, point from, you know, uh, therapeutic area leadership down to individual study team uh, levels, all of those folks were um, <clears throat> were involved and we had somewhat of a customized approach for each of those groups in terms of the information that we would share with them and what our recommendations um, would be. And it looks like there's maybe any a, a uh, imaginary person on the asset team lead in the middle, <laughs> but I think there was a color there at one point before it was converted to the D-Farm slide presentation deck. So just pretend that ghost person is still there and he's an asset team leader, she's an asset team leader. Um, so 
The other piece of it, so let's say, all right, we're going to keep going down this path. We now have a structure and process components in place to assess every study that comes through. We have study teams and TA leads excited about it and happy to do it. And now we're still at that point of, okay, our hypothesis says this should work a certain way. So that also means we need to take into account how the patients feel about it and how investigator sites feel about it, right? There's plenty of examples we can give across the board where we have done a lot of things that we felt are a really good idea that end up being a really bad idea once they involve a patient or involve an investigator site, right? So it still is what I would consider early on. So any of this kind of like data type stuff I'm starting to show you here is kind of what I would call directionally correct or or it's like a, a heating indicator of where we think this stuff is going but at least it's starting to look like it's heading towards a positive direction so a couple quotes up here I'm not going to read all of them here in terms of some of the patient interviews so at the same time we're doing this work we're actively looking to collect data about how patients feel about it again about how investigators feel about it um, and that's the components that are there we have done a number of ongoing um, site uh, interviews, again, trying to obtain feedback. We've had discussions with regulatory agencies and others around it. And all of that, again, is to try to see how we're doing along the way and are there areas we can learn from that we can pivot and adjust to actually make it um, come out a bit better. So you'll see here, again, a couple of the quotes. Um, you know, overall, most of the investigator sites are reporting a positive experience you know, especially during the COVID thing, because there really was no choice. Um, generally, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Others in this room are probably hearing now where it's like, well, maybe some of the need for this decentralized clinical trial stuff is not as strong as it was back then. Um, I would encourage and say it's probably even more of a need now, right? So I think we we owe it to the patients to, to um, start delivering them trials in ways that actually, from a standpoint, allow an opportunity for the average patient to even be able to participate in a study, right? So traditional brick-and-mortar studies, hours of most doctor's offices are 9 to 5, sometimes less than that. The average person is at home, uh, and they work from 9 to 5, or they're taking their kids to school 9 to 5, right? So I think us being able to at least continue to still try to work towards this degree of... Uh, flexibility is really key for us to be able to um, offer that true option of clinical research for care. A little bit about some of the lessons learned we had along the way. So a lot of this stuff is no surprise to the experts in the room here, right? So we all are going through this at the same time. The regulatory landscape is still evolving, no surprises there. So we've all got to stay tuned in and make sure we're communicating right. Um, we need to keep continuing to have the education with the investigators and sites um, that are using DCT and make sure we're still having those conversations. The big thing is also that we came across is uh, think globally and act locally, right? So again, there is not a one-size-fits-all solution for this work. So you know, you've got to really think about it from a standpoint with a global expansion standpoint, you know, make sure you're putting the actual local lens on that in terms of how it will look, how, how, what, what things will be allowed. And, um, 
you know, that's, that's a pretty good standpoint there. And then again, to continue to collect, I think it's important for all of us to really be trying to collect. How is this going? Is it working? Can, can, can we adjust and tweak things? Right. Because I think if we have, you know, some not so good experiences along the way could, could really hinder what I think is overall great progress in the space. So back to the circle where Annie first started from, you see, so the timelines here. So let's start looking at exactly where we're at right here in 2022. Um, so we've roughly that hypercare and clinical child concierge team. I went into detail about is roughly spoken to over 180 <clears throat> teams. Um, we currently have, uh, and this isn't a small lens, that number is actually bigger, but if we look at some of our current lens and our current scope of the year, we have approximately 65 studies that are using or will immediately plan to use uh, DCT as a main component of their study. Um, there's a very growing you know, area around what we refer to as alternative site modalities, right? So we kind of think of that as the next evolution of DCT, right? So truly getting to a flexible component about having um, mobile clinical trial research opportunities, what you would think of as non-traditional sites, you know, having opportunities being able to run clinical research at these other areas. Um, you know, there's nothing too by surprise I can share because it's been advertised a ton. We have a Lyme disease that's ongoing right now and a very large portion of that is um, mobile clinical trials, right? So we have large RVs that are out there doing patient recruitment in all aspects of the study where patients are, you know, most impacted by getting tick bites and impacted by Lyme disease. So, um, you know, and then we're out doing things like this so we can talk to everybody else and learn from you guys as well and all try to come up with the big thing. So... Here's a little bit about what, what we have. So again, I mentioned we are collecting data along the way, and this is just a little sneak peek for you guys here. We are actively collecting this, and I can say we have a lot more data around this piece in terms of every single aspect of, you know, because you can keep drilling deeper and deeper into are you comparing studies that are apples to apples, you know, what, what components and what pieces are doing well. But if we think back to our original hypothesis, two of the main areas that I think all of us are trying to achieve you know, is can we recruit uh, faster and are we able to retain patients in our studies uh, faster, right? So, um, so, so again, in here, for the sake of what I can share here for right now, soon we hope to be able to put out more of what we have found along the way. So on the recruitment side, we have definitely found that, um, you know, out of the studies and the sample of the ones that have completed fully so far, so again, directional trends that feel right, right? So we are um, certainly appearing to be uh, faster recruiting when, when studies are using DCT components. So if we look at some of the um, industry benchmark components, um, we are, uh, the studies we, we, we took a look at for this comparison here, which was nine studies, um, we completed recruitment in roughly four to five months. That's roughly 13.2 months uh, faster than what some of the um, industry benchmark components are um, for, the for the recruitment efforts. Um, now, I'm sure you guys have a bazillion questions around all that kind of stuff there, right? And there are a bunch of different ways 
and different angles we could look at this data. And trust me to say that we have and we are, but this is a component that no matter how we sliced and looked at the data and how we looked at different visits and different studies, it was still holding relatively true there. I'll be the first to say it's not enough data to say to us that we absolutely now can expect this level of increased recruitment. We did pull out our COVID studies from this because they were an outlier, right? I mean, they were run in a very unique and different way. And if we use those, it would may skew things. So, um, but it's enough to where we have enough data to say, let's keep going and let's keep trying. And let's also see if we hold towards this trend of what the data looks like or if it starts to sway or go um, in either way or the other. The other piece around, are we retaining more subjects. Um, so with here, you'll see um, it does appear to be a yes, again, with the same um, pool of data that we have, which again is relatively a small amount, but directionally looking good. Uh, we had 96% average retention rate across the studies. And that, you know, from some of the industry benchmark stuff that's out there, it was 25 percentage points better than what some of the industry benchmark components look like. Now, we found this fairly exciting data to see. I have to admit it was a little bit of a surprise to me. I started asking like, is this data right, right? And, um, you know, but it was certainly enough to where it feels like we're kind of on the right path and are starting to do the right thing, right? Um, we're looking at all those other hypothesis areas that we had around diversity, inclusion, and and all those other areas we see as an improvement also, we're looking very detailed into the data that's there. Some of those other views get more complicated because there's lots of kind of, you know, at the same time efforts going on to, to, to look at um, improving those areas too. So sometimes it could be hard to quantify a DCT specific item is the biggest impact there. But um, overall, the, uh, Initial data we saw here, again, is enough to have us feel like we're on the right path, and it certainly is worthwhile to continue down this thread. And then also trying to think about, again, under those guides of what else can we start to do um, to, to uh, continue to grow and increase the rate of adoption of these, because it looks to be pretty uh, promising at this standpoint. So with that, that ends our presentation. I think according to this little clock thing that's up here. It says we have four minutes left. So if somebody has a question, we maybe could do one or two questions or none. It's fine too. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Uh, quick question. So you, you mentioned that you had nine completed studies. Yeah. Of those studies, were they fully decentralized or did you have more of a hybrid component to it? Yeah, most of those are, in fact, I will say all of those nine, so they're not counting that initial first study that uh, Danny spoke, spoke about. So they are a hybrid. Most, I would say, pretty much all of ours now are hybrid, right? So I think it's kind of important to, to, to have that level of optionality there, you know, so you can account for patient choice at times, right? So in terms of what they want to do. Yeah, we're, we're, we're looking at them, and when I told you we have our goal is 60% um, of our study visits to be uh, decentralized also. So we 
routinely now track in each month we have stats where we go through and look at each of the uh, therapeutic areas and what their adoption rates are. So we've actually learned a tremendous amount along the way. And as you can imagine, we can take that information and feed it back through when, when we're looking at new studies and new protocols in terms of what pieces we think are going to work with what. So, of course, just to give you a quick example, of course, the vaccine study makes a perfect opportunity for some decentralized clinical trial components, right? So other studies like you're not going to have a colonoscopy in your home yet, yet, soon. Tim, um, nice presentation, and I, th I think we all agree with the directional components here that this is the way of the future, and it's working out well. You've put up something here about speed. Um, the median data often used in CMR and KMR is perhaps not a good um, a comparison because that's the midpoint of very large portfolios, and if you cherry-picked out the top nine studies in anyone's portfolio, you'd see uh, good recruitment like that. Right. What you haven't put in here is, the, the promise is that it'll reduce uh, cost. Okay, so you've put something about cycle time and speed, and you've spoken about retention, but our experience with all of those things you put up there is that many of the suppliers cannot scale to our portfolio. And the second thing is, it drove our costs up considerably um, because of the individual components that you put into the trial. You may save on the back end on speed, but the contracting and the upfront part was substantially more expensive. I wonder if you could just comment that I think with time, as you get economies of scale, it may go down. But right at this point, we have found no cost advantage of going the decentralized model. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, over time, we're going to get some of that economy of scale components. We're actually in a very pretty detailed and somewhat exhaustive way. Um, are going through all of our cost data right now. And as you, you know, started to point out there, it can be hard to, to really get a good comparison and look at some of those cost components because a lot of costs are also baked into other things, right? And right now, a lot of this DCT components appear to be, you know, additional cost on top of, right? So it's like, you know, you're not necessarily replacing or getting completely out of another um, piece of work that you're doing, but we are looking at that a lot more. There's some where what we're starting to see from an early standpoint, it's, it's, it's not as upfront expensive as maybe some, some folks thought it was going to be. So we're seeing some improvement there. Maybe some of that economy of scale is starting to happen more, but you make a really great point, right? So, so that's exactly what, what we also, again, I showed you two little small tidbits of the data we've seen so far. We probably have another 20 areas that we're really going into a lot more. And right at zero. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from the DFARM 2022 conference. For more information, please visit theconferenceforum.org.